Hello, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Camille Dimmick, co-manager of the Pacific North of South EM All-Cap Equity Fund. The £690 million fund has been one of the best-performing emerging market value strategies in recent years, while the team also launched a dedicated income mandate last June. Camille, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It's well, a pleasure. Th- thanks for coming in. Maybe we can start by saying, so your, your main um, EM fund, you know, what, what's it all about? Kind of what, what's the USP in a nutshell? Well, as you said, we are value managers. That is absolutely the key underpinning. I think the way we look at value is perhaps slightly different from the usual understanding of value where you run screens and try and buy all the lowest PE stocks okay. and the lowest multiples. We think a lot more about how likely these earnings are to come through, in fact, and we think about the uncertainty surrounding any forecasts we're making, and we use the cost of capital as a tool to manage that. So we we think quite a bit about what the right discount rates are for the individual stocks we're looking at, whether that relates to the risk of the markets they're operating in. We operate in global emerging markets with very, very different discount rates, but also in terms of the business models, the quality of management. So in a nutshell, we think that high quality stocks deserve a lower discount rate and therefore a higher valuation. And that underpins everything we do. Okay. And can those discount rates be very different for stocks based in or which do business largely in different countries? Or or how does that work out? Absolutely. Yeah. So the discount rates we apply can range from anything as low as six or seven percent for a really high quality stock Mm. operating in Taiwan, where there is an incredibly low cost of capital to probably something like 30 percent for a more cyclical, less quality stock operating in a country like Brazil. Wow. Okay. Thanks. Well, as, as we said, uh, your, your fund has been one of the strongest recent performers among emerging market equity strategies. Um, so it's a little surprising to see you own no Indian stocks, given, you know, until recently, that, that's that been a kind of bright spot among emerging markets and attracted a lot, lot of attention. You know, why is that? Yeah, India has been a very strong market, really, over the last few years. We are quite used to not owning some of the hottest areas in emerging markets. If we think back a few years, we didn't own Alibaba and Tencent and the Chinese internet stocks when those were a huge part of the emerging market universe. But we have to stay true to our process. And so we're very much driven by valuations. It doesn't really matter if we think there's a great story Mm. and great companies if we cannot justify the valuation. Unfortunately, India at the moment is still at a very extreme level of valuation. So we did some work on this back in September and... If you look at India, the Indian market versus its own history or versus the broader emerging markets universe, the valuation premium is at an extreme level. We're looking at about two standard deviations above normal levels. And and we're talking here about the valuation premium. It is normal that India trades at a premium to some of the other markets. There's structural reasons for that. And, And India is a good story. We understand why people like India. The problem is if you overpay for something, no matter how great the story is, there will be payback in terms of having to wait for the market to actually grow into its valuation. And so we've been looking elsewhere. Okay. And um, can you just take us through briefly again, why does India trade at a higher valuation full stop? Well, historically, Indian companies have been a great play on this classic emerging market theme of the emerging middle class, the consumers, with growing spending power. And there's a lot of companies in India that 
play directly into this. So people have always liked this, but there's also structural and technical reasons. The Indian market generally is characterized by a fairly low free float. So many companies are controlled by so-called promoters. And, and this is a fairly unique Indian thing that majority shareholders are actually called promoters. The clue is in the name. They're very good at promoting their stocks. There are limited shares to buy for investors. And so it's quite easy for these shares to become quite expensive. We we did write about uh, Mr. Adani's empire back in September, and that's a great example of that. I'm not saying that's that's true of all of India, but it is an example of how these things can manifest themselves when you've got a very limited free float. You've got insiders buying either directly or indirectly, borrowing money against the value of their shares and using that to drive the share prices even higher. And you get to some pretty crazy valuations. I mean, again, that's an extreme example. That's not true of all of India. But the big, the big flow you've had into India has been people who have, after loving China and loving China internet stocks, yeah. deciding that China is actually uninvestable and switch, you know, needing to find another market with a billion consumers. Well, there is really only one. And so a lot of money has gone out of China into a limited free float market such as India and driven up valuations. Yeah. And after a bit of a correction in India, do you, are valuations still too high? Are they still at that historical extreme? They've come off a little bit. So we're we're keeping an eye on India. We're, I, I don't want to make it sound like we're anti-India in any way. And we yeah. have at times been uh, quite well invested in India. We, we do uh, buy the higher quality companies when they're at reasonable valuations. So we are looking. Uh, there's certainly been some pullback in, in, in the extreme valuations, but we're still very high relative to history. And really, my concern is that that needs to work its way through. You know, it, it's... India is having a great moment at the moment. It is a popular market. As a value investor, you do have to be a little bit contrarian. You do have to wait till the euphoria is, is out of the market. And I don't think people have really quite given up on, on the story yet. So, you, you, you know, the classic adage of buying when there's blood on the streets. We're definitely not there in India. I mean, it's, we've had a little underperformance and a little bit of a pullback. Uh, but market's still fairly expensive. Yeah. You mentioned Adani. You'll know much more about the ins and outs of quite what went wrong there than me. Is that just one of those kind of, well, idiosyncratic might be a leading word to use. <laughs> but is, that, is that just one of those kind of idiosyncratic things, one of these occasional blurps we have in emerging markets or, or a sign of something else? Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of a number of things. Actually, you know, if you look at the Hindenburg reports, which of course... The short, the, whole, the short sellers, the short sellers which kind of kicked it off. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, so they published these reports in in March, and what they were alleging is essentially. And again, I, I don't have insight into this. We we weren't interested in Mr. Adani's companies because they were insanely valued, mm. considering they weren't actually particularly high growth businesses. So there was no real justification. But what what the short seller report alleged was that Mr. Adani was actively manipulating the share prices higher. And actually, this is something we're very familiar with. This happens a lot in Hong Kong with small cap stocks. And really, it's a very, very simple, I, I don't want to use the word scam. It, it's, it's, it's not the scam, it's a, but it's, it is share price manipulation. What you do is you, you have a company, a small business, you list it, let's say the market cap is 100 million and you own 60% of it. You go to the bank and you say, I've got 60 million worth of shares. Will you lend me 30 million against that? Sure, you know, it's a pretty comfortable margin. You take the part of that 30 million, you give it to your friends or you use it yourself and you buy the shares very aggressively, drive the share price up uh, and the market cap to 200 million. You can then go to the bank and say, well, 
my shares are now worth uh, 120 million. Will you lend me another 30 million against that? And you can sort of play that game uh, for a while, driving up the share price and, of course, extracting more and more money out of the stock, which ends up getting very overvalued. And so the alleged, again, I, I have no insight into this, but that, that is what is alleged to have happened with Mr. Adani's companies. It's perfectly plausible. But that's not necessarily, again, I don't want to say this is true for all Indian companies. What is also true is that Indian companies are generally, Indian company management generally tell a very good story. International investors are often bamboozled by how much potential there is and how, how great these businesses are and, and the billion Indian consumers. And, and a lot of this is true, but a lot of it is also great marketing spin. And so Mr. Adani was particularly good at this. He threw in various green energy initiatives, India decarbonizing and his yeah. companies helping do that. Although a lot of the money went to fund his coal mines, actually. But anyway, um, that's an aside. So, you know, this is this is somewhat representative of what goes in India, but it's a very extreme example and certainly not true, I think, of, of the market as a whole. OK, kind of on that note, I mean, with these kind of risks, you know, d does value investing in emerging markets fundamentally differ from in developed markets, do you think? Well, the principle is the same. You're trying to acquire assets below their fair value. And the way you will end up outperforming the rest of the market is when either that value gap narrows, so they, they revert towards fair value and therefore outperform, yeah. or by generating a superior income because you're buying income streams on the cheap. And for example, you get very high dividend yield every year. And even if the stock doesn't re-rate, you're getting seven, eight, nine percent dividends every year. So in that sense, I don't think there's anything that different. What I would say is that our approach, which does look at a lot of these additional kind of risk factors that you're facing, is is probably helpful in emerging markets. If you if you're doing just the UK, for example, you don't really need to think about currency risk. In our case, currency risk is very important. A company in Brazil, where you have a very volatile currency and a very high cost of capital, which is, and the two are very much related. So a high cost of capital simply means the country has to pay investors a very high rate of interest to compensate for the risks they're taking and the probable losses they will take on the currency. So in Brazil, we need, all things being equal, we need stocks to be a lot cheaper to compensate, to have more upside um, to compensate for this risk of losing money. In a place like Taiwan, where domestic 10-year bond yields have been around 1% for the last 20 years, have yeah. barely moved, the currency has also barely moved against the dollar. It's, it's basically where it was. So you're not taking that much currency risk, and you can therefore afford to pay more for, for individual stocks. So it's things like this, which are clearly need to be taken in account of. You can't just run a PE screen and buy everything on the lowest PEs even in countries with very high cost of capital. And similarly, I think it helps to be thinking about the individual businesses, the quality of the businesses. But I would say that's probably true of investing everywhere. Okay, thanks. And coming on to kind of more recent trends, um, again, this has come off a bit recently, but what have you made of Chinese markets' recent quite forceful bounce? And have you been thinking about your exposure there? Yeah, so, I mean, some of that bounce has already reversed to some extent. But yeah. we had been saying all along, if we kind of go back to a year ago, we had been reducing our underweights to China. So we had been adding to China over time, mm. uh, coming from a 
position of, of really being very underweight China, very cautious on China way back when it was dominated by the big internet stocks. Um, and the idea was really that COVID zero, that the policy of COVID zero was unsustainable. We had no particular insight into what President Xi was thinking and, and the, the possible timings of that. But we we think about stocks in, as a, on a very long-term perspective. And so in the long-term, we were assuming things go back to normal and there was a lot of recovery potential. And in particular, of course, that was interesting for the consumer sector because it was the Chinese consumer that was holed up at home, even though you have to remember China was reasonably open. Things were up and running even during COVID because they had so few cases. But yeah. as a consumer, you wouldn't go to the cinema because you would be risking that there was someone else in the cinema who would be found to have COVID and you would end up locked up in a government facility for three weeks. <laughs> Nobody was taking that risk. So, so consumer spending was definitely suppressed and we were positioning really for that by adding to consumer stocks in China. That was that was our main focus. So when, when COVID zero was dramatically abandoned, I think faster than anyone thought, we benefited from that. And it was this bounce was driven primarily by the consumer sector. And so that story, I think, is intact. You can see that clearly consumer spending is recovering in China. It's probably not happening as quickly as many people thought, but the trend is very much there. And I think in the consumer space, there's still a lot of attractive opportunities, a lot of stocks that will continue to have this tailwind, even as China struggles with overall GDP growth as the economy tries to rebalance. And the structural challenge China has, of course, is this high dependence on fixed asset investment and also the export sector, yeah. both of which are facing challenges. What they need to do, and they understand this, they need to rebalance the economy towards consumer spending. They need a domestic consumer. China has one of the lowest shares in GDP of domestic consumer spending, but the consumer is fundamentally sound with relatively high savings rates. So this is a policy objective for China and structurally longer term, that shift needs to happen. So again, the consumer sector is, is, is the place to be within China. Okay. And I want to come on to a company you mentioned just there, uh, Alibaba, um, which you you, made, you said you made a big thing of not owning for lots of years when other people did. Um, but then you, you did buy into it, I think, during Beijing's kind of initial crackdown on, on internet stocks a, a couple of years ago. It's still your second biggest bet, about just under 5% of the portfolio. And the shares haven't performed great since then. You know, why are you still hanging on? Yeah, absolutely. And so why did you buy in? You know, why change your mind? <laughs> yeah, so... This is a, a company we'd been following for many years, was, was the bane of our lives for many years because it was a huge part of the index. Right. And it was really too expensive for us to own, although we, we believed it was fundamentally a, a, a very interesting business. Mm. We also always had concerns about potential regulatory risks, both uh, well across the internet space, where many of these companies were encroaching on traditionally very jealously guarded areas for the Chinese Communist Party, such as media, such as education. And so when the crackdown started, we we certainly enjoyed that uh, for, from a relative performance perspective because all these stocks got derated. And we, we did probably about a little less than a year after the crackdown started, we did start investing in Alibaba. That is, as you rightly said, that was probably too early. Hmm. We were driven by our valuation approach and the stock started looking attractive. Uh, I think when you're a value investor, and that's certainly true of us, 
we're likely to be early. We're, we're likely to be early to start buying stocks that are perhaps unpopular, that have negative trends ongoing, because we already see the long-term value in them. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to be early in selling them when things go really, really well. We underestimate, well, we, it's not necessarily an underestimation, but our valuation models take us out of these stocks while they may well continue going on as, as the popular imagination catches on. So, so being early is a, fe- is a feature, it's not a bug of the strategy. Clearly, we were early in Alibaba. We've continued adding to it, uh, even at the very lows. And we continue holding the stock. And the reason we continue holding the stock is because we remain quite convinced in the long-term value of its underlying businesses. You may not have seen, and this is breaking news, um, so happy to break it here. Um, Alibaba's just announced that they're splitting the business into six separate business units. Okay, I had indeed not seen that. Well, this this literally just came out a couple of minutes ago. So I haven't looked at it in, in full detail, but the idea here is very clear. There is a lot of hidden value in each of these individual business units. One business unit would be the cloud business, clearly with a focus on AI and all these very exciting things. That business doesn't actually make any money, doesn't really contribute to earnings. Yeah. But as a standalone business, I can imagine that'll have a very significant valuation. And so by splitting the business up and, and one day listing these as separate businesses, I suspect quite a bit of value could be created. But you know, it, that's not why we own the stock. We own the stock because it generates a lot of free cash flow. It has a very solid balance sheet, a lot of net cash on the balance sheet. It's a classic value stock. It absolutely has political risks, but I think these have now been pretty much priced in. I think if anything, the pendulum has now swung somewhat from a policymaking perspective from trying to clamp down on, on these private businesses to try and release them a little bit and encourage them to, to come back and to continue driving the economy, which is in the interest of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think we will see a, a revaluation of, mm. of many of these stocks. Okay, well, the breakup of Alibaba potentially sounds like definitely something interesting to watch. Um, maybe we, we can come on to Taiwan. Uh, it's now your, your biggest overweight in the portfolio at, at, at more than a, the, a fifth. Um, you know, what, what's going on there? It seems like the driver, more than a kind of depressed consumer there, is about, you know, cheap tech hardware companies. Is that right? Yeah, Taiwan is a market we have historically always liked. It enjoys a low cost of capital, as I mentioned earlier. And generally, the companies there are the kind of companies we like buying. Not not necessarily that they are tech companies, but when we think what they do, a lot of these businesses have very strong barriers to entry thanks to the intellectual property they've developed. They're very specialized in niche markets where they have dominant market positions. In many cases, they account for 40, 50% of the world's um, production of some niche product uh, that goes into IT equipment and, and, well, pretty much any equipment nowadays has yeah. electronics. And, uh, and, and then they're very well managed. They're, they're run by engineering teams. They typically have very strong cash generation, very low capital expenditure requirements, and pay out the cash flow as dividends. And valuations are very attractive, typically. Taiwanese companies always trade at very low multiples, if you if you come back to multiples, despite enjoying this low cost of capital. So it's a market we are generally positive on. What we've had recently is an opportunity to re-enter some positions that we had uh, previously sold. 
because they had gotten a little more expensive and because we were really concerned about this post-COVID hangover, which we are experiencing in the tech sector right now because everyone built up inventory because there was a shortage of everything. Now we're having what they call, and, and every Taiwanese company will be talking about this, inventory digestion. So all their clients have stocked up on all these chips they couldn't previously get. Right. They're suddenly finding, oh, hang on a minute, we've, we've got, got too much many. of this. And so the the interesting impact is it gets magnified on the suppliers because it's not that end demand for the products with those chips has collapsed. It may be a little weaker than expected, but it hasn't collapsed. But it's the the bit in the middle, the guys who are, who've stocked up on these chips and now have these huge inventories, they simply don't need any additional chips. They're trying to sell, work their way through what they've got. So demand for, for many of these Chinese, uh, Taiwanese tech companies has really collapsed. And the last few quarters have been really difficult. But this is a temporary phenomenon because once these inventories have normalized, even if end demand isn't particularly strong, it will still translate into a pickup in sales for many of these companies. And, and so we've had a big pullback in Taiwan in many of the, these companies in terms of valuations. They look attractive on the long-term perspective. And we think, you know, we're, we, we don't know the timing exactly, but it is a finite yeah. earnings hit, really, of this kind of inventory, uh, inventory processing. And actually, the, the market is already starting to look through it, and, and we are seeing Taiwan performing quite well. On that note, uh, Berkshire Hathaway's abrupt buy and then sale of uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, your top holding, surprised many. What what did you make of that? And how, how does that relate to your decision to buy back into the stock or not? Yeah, so that's quite an uncharacteristic thing for Berkshire Hathaway to do. And the suspicion, I think, everywhere is that it wasn't a Warren Buffett idea, but probably one of his underlings. Warren Buffett generally doesn't invest in technology companies. So it came as a big surprise when it was announced in September that they had bought a stake. Interestingly enough, when they announced that uh, they they had bought a stake, we had actually just bought back our position. So uh, Taiwan Semiconductor historically has been a really core holding for us. It's a great company with very strong barriers to entry, very strong cash generation, incredibly well managed, does tick many of the boxes for Berkshire Hathaway, other than, of course, it is quite a complicated business in the technology space. We have a Taiwanese technology analyst who specializes in these kind of names. And so we feel very comfortable owning that stock for the long term. But I think for Berkshire Hathaway, perhaps this was slightly unusual and slightly out of the box, which is why the holding period was so short. But, you know, we, we like I said, we used to own the stock. We had to sell it about two years ago because the valuation had gotten very stretched I think the rest of the world had sort of picked up on what a great company this was. And we had to wait until about yeah September last year until valuations had come back down to attractive levels for us to buy back in. So we're very happy holders. We know Berkshire Hathaway sold in February. And I think just just as their, their purchase decision was probably a little bit of a surprise, their sell decision was uncharacteristic, but probably logical. For us, this remains very much a core holding. It's something we, we we will hopefully own for a long time, at least until the valuation gets expensive again. In which case, we'll have to find some other ideas. Okay. And so, as we as mentioned right at the beginning, so you launched the um, EM Equity Income Opportunities Fund, if I've got the name right, last June. Uh, how, how's it how's it been going so far? Yeah, a bit of a mouthful. Sorry about that. But, uh, <laughs> um, that's that's been great actually. So the genesis of this was we've been really looking at the kind of dividends we're able to generate from our stocks in places like Taiwan, 
but increasingly and surprisingly, perhaps also in places like Korea, which don't have a history of paying high dividends. Right. But you have Korea as a combination of very low valuations, partly because of historically poor corporate governance and improving corporate governance, which is leading companies to start paying dividends. Now, when you're at a very low valuation, even a small, a relatively small dividend payout can lead to fairly high yield. So markets like Korea are starting to get interesting. We've also got a number of Middle Eastern markets that are very good dividend payers in US dollars effectively, because those currencies are linked to US dollars. You're not taking currency risk and so on. And so we've been looking at this opportunity for a while and saying, well, actually, if we set up a focused sub-strategy of what we do, same, same process, same philosophy, but really focused on generating income while minimizing currency risk, looking at the cost of capital using that same kind of process, we could put together a very attractive yielding fund. And so the fund that we have put together is probably yielding around 8 or 9% annually wow. in uh, in uh, in income, I have to look at the exact numbers right now. But and it's it's outperformed the broader market very significantly. We don't really think of it as a unlike the main strategy where the idea is really to outperform the MSCI Global Emerging Markets Index. Here we're thinking of it a little more in, in absolute terms in, in terms of generating that income and growing the value of the fund in line with inflation. Um, and and it's it's very much been doing that. So it's proven to be quite defensive since we launched the fund. The markets have been on the weak side, really, despite the rally in China. So, so it's it's proven to really kind of do what we think it would do, which is hold up very well, pay out a, a generous income uh, and uh, and have a lower volatility. OK, well, thanks very much, Camille. I, I, we could speak for a long time, I think, but that's all we've got time for. So uh, last thing to say is just uh, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on and, and any time. Excellent. And just to our listeners, thank you for listening as well. Please look out for more podcasts soon. Thank you.